Hello there, friends. It's your old pal, Aria Halwani, back with another episode of DC and Halwani. This is the beginning of a brand new chapter in this show's history. We here at ESPN, very excited about it. I'm very excited about it. DC is very excited about it. We got a lot to talk about with Daniel Cormier. This is his first public appearance, if you will, certainly from a media perspective since his fight on August 15th. So stay tuned for that. Something else that I'm very excited about, the NBA playoffs. They are in full swing. A lot of great matchups, a lot of great performances. And there's one podcast here at ESPN that I love to talk to uh, my pal TST about. In fact, he produces it. It's called The Hoop Collective with Brian Windhorst. I love this podcast. Wendy, as you probably know, is one of the best NBA reporters in the game. And he and his rotating cast of guests talk each and every week, each and every episode about all the amazing things happening on the court every single night. If you're just a diehard basketball fan like myself, then this is the pod for you. Brian Windhorst and the Hoop Collective. Download and subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. Now, on to today's program, which, as you probably also know, is the fastest growing show at ESPN. And it also may contain language that's not so suitable for all audiences. So... Listener discretion is advised. Enjoy. Now making their way to the microphone, it's Daniel Cormier and Ariel Helwani. Back in your life on this Monday, August 31st, 2020. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to a brand new edition of DC and Helwani presented by Modelo. Modelo Especial. Root for those with a fighting spirit. That's DC Daniel Cormier. I'm Helwani, Ariel Helwani, and DC, my man, look at us. Moving on up. We've got a new intro. We got a new theme song. We got a new graphics package, a whole new look, a whole new sound. Everything is new. Look at us. We've come a long way. I mean, we made it. We made it, baby. Like when you look around, sometimes you look around and you feel brand new. You know, you wake up in the morning and you just feel brand new. And this feels brand new. Look, I got the glove behind me. We got the DC and Helwani logo, which we would like to stress how much input we had and all all the stuff that you're seeing now from the entrance music to the logos to the color scheme. This was me and Helwani helping too. Like from the ground floor, we built this thing. So it wasn't just us. Back in March, when the pandemic hit and your life felt so different, and Ariel and I decided to bring a bit of sunshine to you, we did it again. (laughs) We kind of re-upped. We remixed it by getting new logos and doing all this. And we didn't just sit in our penthouses. We didn't just lay down on these fancy couches. We were in the trenches with the people, getting all of this ready to go and look at us now. I mean, we look good, Ariel. I don't like to give myself many compliments, but we look good. And you're wearing a very expensive shirt today. I've got on a polo. I threw away the slumpy sweat tops. I mean, this is the real deal, baby. This is the first time you ever dressed up for the show, which is a big deal. I, I, I usually get dressed for first take, but now when, you, when we become this official, I'm getting dressed up, baby. And it is important to note that because first off, I will say, yes, we did have input, but a lot of smart people at ESPN really wait, made wait, this wait, magic wait, wait, happen. Wait, wait. So let's, so I just I mean, took all the credit. I'm just yeah, trying to take just, all the credit. Like, why are you, why, why you going to do that to me? We're supposed I mean, to be partners in this because all those smart people aren't talking. It's you and me, baby. I know, we I have know. nobody to fight and counter us. Oh, I get it. So maybe you're the white knight 
and I'm not the white knight. Maybe when, you're the corporate man listen, because you just came to the corporation's defense here. Listen, you're the corporate man when it comes to the guys who sign your checks. I'm the corporate man when it comes to the guys <laughs> who sign my checks. And the good people at ESPN signed my checks. Yes, they did. So I want to give props for what they did because this is a big deal. I used to joke uh, with you leading up to this since March that, uh, you know, are you in? Are you out? Is it an interview? It's not. We are official. This is the new plan going forward every Monday, 2 p.m. Eastern on YouTube, then on podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. And then the big piece of news is the fact that beginning tomorrow, Tuesday night, Midnight Eastern, 9 p.m. Pacific, DC and Helwani, going to linear television, ESPN2, sometimes ESPN News if there's a counter-programming. But it's big. We're going to be on the tube. This is part of the dream. This was one of the items that we wanted to cross off, and now it's happening sooner rather than later. This is a big deal. It happened fast. I mean, did you ever think that when you and I went to UFC 248, I believe, to do our first episode of DC and Helwani in that studio in Las Vegas late at night, the phone lines were buzzing. They it was were. like one of those radio shows when I was a kid and the DJ's talking in his deep voice. You had, a, you had a deeper tone to your voice on that night. And the people were all just like very, very, uh, they participated greatly. We never thought that this would be where we are today. I mean, this has only been six months. Six yeah. months later, we're going on television. I mean, come on. And it's all because of the fans. So thank you to everyone who supported us. Uh, thank you to you. I, I couldn't think of anything I'd rather do every Monday than, than hang with you, talk about the great sport of MMA, and talk about everything going on in this sport and sometimes outside of the sport. So this is the beginning to me of a new chapter, and I can't wait. But before we get into everything, this is a very unique show because this is the first time, DC, we, we, we got to break the fourth wall. This is the first time that, uh, that you speak to the world after mm -hmm. what happened on August 15th. Um, so we have a lot to discuss as far as you are concerned. And, and this will, I will say, maybe venture a little more into interview style because I think a lot of people want to ask you a lot of things and I want to ask you a lot of things. So first things first, how is the eye? I think that's the thing that people are most concerned about. Yeah. How is your eye feeling? So it's much better, right? It, it was, uh, I think it was, I think it was my, my right eye or my left eye. I think whichever <laughs> one, like it, it was, uh, I think it was your left. It was, uh, no, I know. But um, so it was very bad. Um, initially, you know, the first week and a half, a week or so, it was really bad. It wasn't opening and it was completely blurry, but now it just kind of feels like an eyelash, isn't it? You know, so, um, I went and saw the doctor last week. He told me that, um, I'm probably not going to have to have surgery, just kind of rest and recover. Same thing, but it was bad for like a week and then it started to get better. Um, I got some medicine, antibiotics and stuff to just kind of go into my eye three times a day. And, um, it just started to get better and better and better. And now today it feels good. But um, just feels like there's something in there. Like, you know, when you get an eyelash and you mm. just can't get it out, it's just right in the corner right here. It's not bad, though. It's not bothering me all that much. Torn cornea, right? Yes, it was a torn cornea. And um, it was concerning initially because they did not know how severe it was going to, the impact was going to be going forward. You know, they didn't know if I was going to have to have surgery and do all these other things. But luckily, I was able to, uh, I'm able to like recover and, and um, I feel better. And I prefer not to have surgery. You know, I don't want to go under the knife for everything. You know, so if it's something that I can avoid, if it's even an option to not do it in that way, I'll always choose that option. And, and they say that you'll get full vision back. Yes, I will. Okay. Like I said, it's just, the, uh, it's just the, uh, the little like eyelash thing right now. It's just in the corner of my eye when I look in certain air, like directions, you know. But it's not, it's not, it doesn't bother me all that much. You know, you can almost get used to pretty much anything. You know, right. if, you, if, if you're dealing with it for so long, you can kind of get used to anything. And 
I feel like that's kind of where I am right now. As long as my eye is opening, right? It's like, it's a little bit like smaller, but it's not as bad as it was uh, obviously the day of the fight. So 16 days removed from the fight. How do you feel about what happened? Mm. Uh, I, thought, I thought that Stipe fought a good fight. I thought that him and his team had a good, great game plan uh, to fight. And I thought it, it, was, it was okay. You know, I look back on the fight and the first round he was fighting really well. And then I caught him with that big shot at the end and rocked him bad. And the judges were scoring the round to me. And then I think one judge didn't score the round to me or something. It was weird. But then in the second round, I thought I fought beautifully and I thought I was ahead and I was winning the round. And then um, at the end of the round, he knocked me down and that gave him the round. So that was very, uh, it was very difficult to deal with. So the second round is what I'm having the most problems with because I always tell the young fighters in AKA that there are going to be times in your career where you're going to make decisions that make you great or they make you average. They're decisions and mistakes inside of a fight. And what does allow for me to be who I am is that I don't make those mistakes. And when I have, I've paid for them, right? With the Jones fight, when I would always dip to the side, know when he was going to throw the kick, I got, I got knocked down, knocked out. Um, in the Miocic fight, the second time, he kept throwing to the body. I never adjusted it. You know, like I don't usually make those mistakes. In the second fight, obviously, I was just too fatigued to defend. But in the third fight, Second round, you know, you look at the fight and with the way the, ju the judges scored the first round. Second round, I'm fighting great. 15 seconds, I don't circle into his power. I may be going into the third round up 2-0 or 1-1 worst case and not having to essentially give away the third round because I was so hurt. It just changed the whole dynamic of the fight. So I'm having a lot of difficulties with the end of the second round because I don't generally make those types of mistakes. And... uh smaller octagon circled to my left into his right. And he legitimately just threw as many right hooks as he could until eventually he hit me. And uh, yeah, it was a, it was, it was a bad sequence that really affected the, the fight. And um, third round, I was so hurt that I uh, third round. I was so hurt that I was just kind of like trying to get my bearings about me so that I can go back into the fourth and try to win the fourth and try to win the fifth. So, it was, uh, it was interesting. When you say that that's the round you're having the most trouble with, just curious, have you rewatched the fight or is this something that you just keep thinking about? I've watched that, I've watched that round over and over again. I've watched that round over and over since, since the fight just because I know it in my mind, right? I'm a guy that, that, that understands what's happening out there. So for me to make that mistake was, was, was so crazy to watch and see me literally hit him and then start circling to the wrong direction as he was pursuing me. All I had to do was pivot and turn, pivot and turn. And then, you know, man, I think you got to start taking all things into account, you know, maybe three, four years ago, two years ago, that, that punch doesn't land, you know, but at 41, you know, maybe the reflex has slowed down a little bit. You know, I know I was in there and some of the things he was throwing was hitting me when before I was just like, this could never have hit me, you know, like it wouldn't have hit me you know, before, because he threw the same strikes and I didn't feel like they were landing, but he was hitting me with things that I didn't think should be landing. So um, you got to take all things into account. Maybe, you know, partially it is the age, you know, and you being older and you're in there. And, and, and there's a saying that 
a lot of times when guys fight multiple times uh, and it's a good fight, competitive fight, close fight, the younger guy will get it, edge it out, you know, and I, I think that's what happened in the fight. What did it feel like in the third when the, uh, the finger went in the eye? Oh, man, it was so weird, too, because when he hit me, he hit me with the right hand, which he's done a number of times, right? He's hit me with a lot of big right hands, and none of them ever really hurt me. Like, the second round, it hurt me, obviously, because I took, like, three of them in the road, and I tried to shoot. Um, but it was, it was weird because I felt him hit me with the one-two, and I went to punch him back, and then he kind of threw another jab. And I was like, man, did he hit me again? Because I felt fine before but I was like did he hit me again because when I started to evade him it was like my legs and stuff were all like like my body was like not working I was like what is going on like I was trying to like tell Goddard that he had poked me in the eye but my legs were all wobbling I'm falling up against the side of the octagon but like when he he poked me like it went so deep that it kind of like messed with my like uh my 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 uh my my equilibrium I guess it was weird you know so that's what it felt like. But I could feel, I felt the poke immediately. I was like, hey, man, he poked me in the eye, you know, like, and I just couldn't really understand how um, he didn't see that. You know, to me, you've done a lot of incredible things in your career. You know, I've said time and again, I think that you're one of the all-time best top five at worst. What you did in that fourth round might be the greatest round of your career. I thought that you were getting knocked out. You couldn't see. It looked like you were trying to guess where the punches were coming. It looked like you, you, you were having trouble out there. You were uncomfortable. You were in pain. I can't believe you won that fourth round. That, to me, blows me away. That's one of the greatest things you have ever done in your athletic career, winning that fourth round. You know, yeah, to some judges. I mean, a couple of judges didn't, you know, I, one judge didn't give me the round, I think. So, I, or two judges, I don't know. The, the, the scoring was weird, but um, – yeah, man, I, I, I had to really kind of just dig deep. You know, I, I felt good. I wasn't tired. I wasn't fatigued. So I felt in shape to compete and continue. So that allowed for me to uh, go out there and try to get back to work, you know. But he did a good job of, of pressing to the fence. You know, the time I think about in my fight career that that closely resembled was when I fought Jones the first time. Jones took an underhook and he grabbed my right wrist, right? It was like that was – he was going to slow me down that way and kind of gauge. And I think in the third round, because I was having to accept that position, it gave Stipe and them the idea that this could work. Maybe we should go back to it. And that's why he did it so much. And then in the, sec in the fourth round, honestly, when we were fighting, I felt like I had won two rounds going into the fifth round. I really did. And I was like, in the fifth round, if I just push, you know, I know that I'm tired. I know that he's tired. But if I just push, I could, I can, uh, I can still win the fight. But then he kind of got to that clinch position and just held it. And then he did something that was much different. He's so much taller than me that when he was taking those two underhooks, he stopped putting it behind my back because earlier he was trying to take me down, but I was defending. So he started lifting the underhooks behind my shoulder blades because he's so much taller. It's almost like I'm on my tippy toes trying to get my weight back down to redig an underhook. And it was giving me a ton of problems. So I was having to almost accept those. Which is why at one point I like turned my back to him because then I can try to fight the hands to get away. That was a great adjustment on their part. So ultimately you think the right man won? Like you think that he deserved to win three rounds to two based on what he did? I thought he won the fight. Yeah, I'm not going to sit here and be uh, – I thought he won the fight. Yeah, I don't think – you know, with the way judging is, you were hopeful <laughs> going after, but the reality is he won the fight. Yeah, he did a good job. And 
he deserved to, to get his hand raised on that night. He won the fight. You know, that short right that you were landing, man, you landed that one in the first fight yeah, and it knocked him out. Were you surprised that he ate it so many times? You landed it a few times. I landed it a lot of times over the course of that fight. I hit him with a, a ton of punches, like, um, and hurt him. He got hurt a lot of times with those shots, you know, and buzzed, but he was in great shape. And when you're in great shape, it doesn't matter what you get hit with. A lot of times you can deal with it. You know, that's people talk about the chin, the chin, the chin. It's about being in excellent shape too, you know? So some of the punches that we landed on each other, the only reason we were able to take those shots is because we're in, we're in, we're fit and ready to go. Um, yeah, I was very surprised that he was able to withstand all that damage. He took a lot of damage, but he he took it. I will say that uh, I have never enjoyed a UFC card less than that one. I mean, it was just, it was the worst. I just wanted to, and then you see your eye. It was, you know, at this point, it was just weird. Not that I was rooting against Stipe. It just, I can't imagine how your wife feels, you know, watching you fight over the years or your loved ones, your mom. I mean, I just can't imagine. And one thing that really drove me nuts, but I kept it to myself, was seeing all the comments being like, oh, he poked him in the second fight. He got what he deserved yeah. in the third. And that really, I mean, that bothers me. Do you hold any animosity towards Stipe for the eye poke? No, I, I don't. You know, man, things happen. It's a mistake. You know, like he, he made a mistake. I don't think he tried to do it on purpose. You know, this is what it is, man. We're fighting with, with four-ounce gloves that don't have finger covers. And so when he went to punch, he could have been stuck in between a punch and grabbing my head. You don't know what happened. You know, so it's like, I don't know exactly what happened in that instance that made him poke my eye. So it's, it, I, I can't blame him for that. Like, I, I, hope, I harbor no bad feelings. Um, it is what it is. You know, it is what it is. Um, it seemed like you got him early in the fight as well. And I was like, oh, man, here we go again. People are going to say that, you know, he won because of this or he's dirty and all that stuff. Is there anything that can be done at this point? Or is this just now that you've actually experienced this both ways? <laughs> with the gloves, with the eye pokes, or is this just a part of MMA that people have to deal with? The reality is like, the reality is that's why I was so like in the first round, I was like, I was almost sad. I was like, God dang it, man. Like this again, you know, because the reality is like, we hear that. Like is we Tiago hear that. back. What's going on? Is no, it's, back? My, it's my wife trying to stay off the camera, trying to get my, <laughs> she's you like, know, trying to plug my computer. What you know how bad you are at this? Like, do you think you're fooling me? She's trying so bad not to plug. She's trying so bad not to get on TV that it's, it's fine. Free. Hello it's to right. Selena. I hope she's feeling good. She's right there. Yep, man. We're getting close to the baby. I'm sorry, guys. Let me. Uh, no, it's okay. Listen, you're a little rusty. This is the fine. this is the magic of the show right here. Just because we're big time doesn't mean we can't have these moments now. I'm you know. That guy, I'm that guy that that computer dies in the middle of the show. I just thought Tiago came back to give you coffee or tea. You know, you brought no, him no, back. No, no, he's, he's not back, bro. He texted me this morning and told me how happy he is that we're doing the show. But no, I'm not. I'm not. I harbor no bad feelings towards Stipe, man. Like he made a mistake. Like he made a mistake. You know, it is what it is, and that's why when I got that's why when I got poked him in the first round, I was like, God dang, man! Like, because you don't want that stigma of being a, a dirty fighter. Like that's the one thing I'm not. You know, I'm not poking this guy in his eyes on purpose. You know, so. No, I'm, I'm not. I harbor no bad feelings. I don't think that he did it on purpose, and, and, and it is what it is. You know, it just kind of happens, man. And unfortunately, it's, it's the gloves that we fight with. It sucks, but it is what it is. What was it like um, when the moment hit you that this is your last fight? 
and we'll get to that in a second, but like you're walking out, it's empty. You're at the apex of all places and it's empty. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, I don't know if you can confirm this, it sounded like someone was yelling and then we come to find out it's Halle Berry that was cheering for you, that like there's only one person in attendance who's yelling and it's Halle Berry of all people. It was Halle Berry. It was crazy. (laughs) It was so crazy. I came up from the, I walked out the back to, uh, to get ready to make that turn and run. And I could just hear somebody yelling so loud. And when I got into the octagon, I looked up into this because, uh, you know, if you're there, I think it was Hallie's birthday. So it must have been like her birthday gift to go watch the fight. You can't go on the octagon floor. You can't go on the apex floor, you know, so you got to kind of be up in like a, a VIP seating area. And so I looked up and it was Halle Berry. And she's so nice. Like even after the fight, she gave me the biggest hug and oh told me how you know proud she was and everything. She's a nice lady, man, and it was cool because over the course of the years, you know, you look at what you've done in the sport and you look at how you're going to be remembered and how you're standing in the sport of mixed martial arts or in the sports world. And over that last – that fight week, I could feel that it was it, – it's different. I've accomplished some great things, and – and the sports world does take uh, notice of it. Everybody does. And so it, it's great to know that. Is it true she mentioned that she's a big fan of mine and listens to all my stuff and watches she, all my she goes, She goes, I, she, that was one thing she actually made it a point to say was that really? she's never heard Ariel Hawani. She was like, oh. man, Ariel Hawani is like not a guy that I like to listen really? to. Because you know oh. some people who were there said that they, she was talking. <laughs> she's, yeah, she's a nice lady. It was Halle Berry going crazy. Damn. When I made the turn, I, it was weird because, like, all week, I felt these nerves that I had never felt before in a long time, right? And I was like, man, maybe it's because I haven't fought in so long. or, But I just felt these nerves. And, like, by the end of the week, I was almost, like, overwhelmed with just nerves. Like, it was, I was so nervous. Like, I'd never fought before. But I think it hit me that everything was, was on the line in that one. But then the moment I got out there to step in that, the prep point, I was just fired up and ready to fight. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I can tell you were fired up. You pulled your pants up all the way to your, you know, <laughs> to your chest over there. I mean, that was that was an extra pull. <laughs> so when I fought Derek Lewis, I had my extra large size pants, and uh, I was two hundred fifty two pounds, and um, so I had to go up to a two X, and I never switched them back. So when I, went, <laughs> I never switched them back. So then when I went to this fight, I was like two hundred thirty five pounds, and uh, I was still in the 2X, so they were, like, really loose around the waist and everything. So when I hiked them, they went a little bit higher than they normally would. <laughs> it was great. Um, I enjoyed that very much. That made me feel good. Um, okay, so the fight is over. Uh, reality sets in. You did not win. You don't get that moment. Uh, you don't take off your gloves. You don't stick around. You don't, you don't do that whole scene that people like to do. And you've, you've done it as well in wrestling. You took off your, mat, your shoes and you left them on the mat. I remember that. Uh, why didn't you do that in the moment? It's not my, it's not, you know, I lost the fight. That's Stipe's moment. He's the champ. Like, why would I do that? Because a guy like me retires in the octagon there. And that's what people talk about. You know, I think in the standing of the world, you know, uh, there's a difference between Stipe and I. And um, if I'm in there and I take my gloves off and it's like, it's almost like stealing the thunder. I, w- I wasn't going to do that. He won the fight. So I just went to the back. I went to the back, get, get, get out of there and let that guy have his moment with his team and let him celebrate. 
they've done that for me. So I got out the way. Uh, and, I, and I know that you deal with these losses, you know, very hard, but you care so much. We've seen you pour it all out inside the cage, outside of the cage. How did you deal with it? You know, Saturday night, Sunday, Monday, not only the loss, but you had to deal with the eye and knowing that this could be it. I was sad. I was very sad. You know, like I cried, I cried like always. I, uh, I felt very sad and disappointed. Apologized to my coaches for not getting the job done and, um, apologize to my wife and kids and everybody that, that, you know, thought I was going to win the fight and have sacrificed so much for me to get ready for the fight. But then when I got home on Sunday evening, my wife was still pregnant and healthy. My children were still healthy. Nobody was, my, my coaches immediately told me, apologize for what? Like we've seen things and done things that none of us have ever done before. You know, nobody's ever gone to this level and we appreciate the ride, you know? And then, I started thinking to myself when I'm sulking and I'm sitting there, I started thinking to myself, like those, those reactions a lot of times were pre- preparation for the next time. You know, if I was so sad and I was crying because Jones beat me, I cried and I was sad because I wanted to ensure that it hurt so much that it would never happen again. But then I started thinking there isn't another one. There isn't another again, you know, so I need to maybe process this in a little bit different. You know, I can't just shut myself off and uh, be like in the room the whole time and just not talk to my family, not talk to anyone, you know, just like I need to process this one differently. You know, I need to try to see how I can start to move forward. And that's what I did. Just not allowed for it to just, kind of paralyzed me. I just spent time with my family and started doing things with my kids and my wife and just try to do it a little differently. Are you done? Am I done fighting? Yeah. I'm not going to fight anymore. You know, uh, I fought, I was talking to Joe Rogan after the fight and I told him my interest is fighting for championships. And I can't imagine like, you know, what what a loss that I would, be fighting for a belt again. I've lost two fights in a row for the first time in my career. You know, like you got to understand, you know, when it's time. And the reality is part of the reason I got hit with that right hand by Stipe is because I might be, I'm older, you know, you can't, you can't fight father time. And at 41 years old, I fought the heavyweight champion in the world, three rounds to two. That's with the idea that I wanted to win. You know, I didn't go in there trying to give a good account of myself. I wanted to win the fight, and I still believe I can beat Stipe Miocic. But every day that passes, it doesn't work in my favor. And all these young guys, they just continue to improve, and they continue to train and get better, and they stay younger. They stay a lot younger. Even when Jones and I fought the first time, I was 35 years old. I mean, he was, I don't know, maybe 26, 25, something like that. You know, like, those guys are still young, and – Every day that goes by, my time just kind of gets a little bit more in the review. So, yeah, I'm not going to be fighting anymore. I, I, I don't want to just fight, you know. It makes me sad to see guys like Robbie Lawler last weekend fighting guys that years ago, as, for as talented as Neil Magny is, I don't feel like that would have been as hard a fight for Robbie back in the day. But Robbie today gets beat 30-26 by Neil Magny. 
fighting on the co-main event of a fight night card from those classic fights that he had with Rory, you know, like that sucks, you know, and I'm, and he's only 38. So I'm not, I am not saying Robbie Lawler should not be fighting, but at 41, what am I going to do next? You know, just go fight some random dude, go be fodder for somebody to build their name off of. I don't need that. And I'm only asking this because I feel like I have to because it's a fight game, not because I'm advocating for it because I feel like you are making the right decision if you never fight again. But do you think that there's any scenario in a year or two where you miss it and they come to, you know how the fight game goes, right? I mean, Bernard Hopkins stuck around till 50. Is there any chance you come back or you're closing the door shut? No way. I feel like I'm closing the door shut on this thing, man. I got, I got a text message yesterday from Cassandra asking me if I'm getting out of the USADA testing pool. And I told her, yeah, I just haven't told him yet. You know, and I think when you do that, you know, you're, you're pretty certain of your decision. So I've been tested by USADA since I was 21 years old. You know, I've been tested by USADA for 20 years of my life. And uh, yeah, it's, it's over, you know, and, and even though it's, and I'm not sad about it. Like, I'm not sad. Like, I'm not sad. Like, I don't feel like, oh man, you know, I'm going to miss it. I'm going to miss the training camps. I'm going to miss the fights. There's nothing like a fight week, but you have to understand when it's your time. And I feel like it's time, you know. One thing I was thinking about afterwards was something that you said to me before the fight, which was when you were done with wrestling and you had to figure out what was next, no one really cared for Daniel Cormier, right? Your stock was at its lowest. You, you, you were disqualified from the 2008 games because of the, the faulty weight cut. Uh, you kind of go to AKA. No one really knows what to expect from you. No one knows if you'll be able to make weight, all this stuff. And if you'll even be able to be a fighter, right? You weren't a striker. You weren't a boxer. And so your stock was at its lowest. Have you had a chance to compare where your stock is at today as you end this journey as an athlete compared to where it was 11 years ago and all the stuff that you have? I mean, it's pretty remarkable, right? Your stock is at its highest as you walk away. You know, when you, when you close a door on something, it's very difficult. You know, I've, shed, I've shed a lot of tears thinking about retiring from fighting. But then I went to I went to – I got back home Monday – and uh, the whole week I had meetings with massive companies for endorsement deals. And I had meetings for television opportunities. And I got calls from different organizations telling me they just want to be in the Daniel Cormier business. Like 2009, I had none of that. Like I was at my lowest of lows. And so there are a number of opportunities, but nothing's ever going to be I'm never going to get that thrill of competition anymore. And I think for me, that's going to be the most difficult part is that I love to compete. You know, it's what I do. It's what I've done my whole life. I've been at the highest level since I was a young boy, you know, so it's like, it's going to be very difficult to not have that part of my life, but I'm going to take all that energy that I have spent trying to, win championships and be the best in the world in wrestling and try to apply it to what I do next. And I think that there are going to be a lot of opportunities to, to do those things. You know, it's, it's hard though. It's hard. It's hard to know that a part of something that burns inside of me is going to have to be kind of like, I mean, for lack of a better word, killed. I've got to kill that part of who I am, you know, that competitive that desire to beat everybody at everything all the time. I've got to find a way to 
deal with that in a better way because I don't have that outlet anymore. So, yeah, it's been tough, but I've got a lot of opportunities. I'm telling you, man, I, I it was amazing that so many things happened the week following me losing a fight. It was crazy. By the way, when you're in these meetings talking to these very important people, at any point you say, like, you know, I got my guy and we're kind of a package deal and this is, you know, like, or is it because I didn't know about the meetings. It's the first I hear about the meetings. So I'm just curious, like, I mean. Well, the focus with you and I was on this, <laughs> trying oh, okay. to get this thing all going. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I was like, man, I can't take this guy with every part of my deal. Oh, you know? okay. no, I, can't, I can't take him with everyone. But okay, now we, we feel like, I feel like, um, some really, really big things are out ahead of me, and I'm excited about it. As we uh, put a bow on the career, and it feels – you can't put a bow on a career of your stature. I mean, it's impossible for me to do it, and I feel like it's an injustice for me to even try to do it. But considering everything you've been through from, from uh, Oklahoma against Gary Frazier, Strike Force Challengers, right, all the way to the apex, I mean, what a freaking run, man. The ups and downs. <laughs> And the, the perseverance of the, and the Strike Force Grand Prix, it's just, it's incredible. And it's such an honor to be there from the beginning and end and cover it. Um, one of the all time greats. Can you tell us just when were you your happiest? What is the happiest moment of your fighting career? What was the pinnacle for you? Man, it's hard to put a, uh, it's hard to like put a, you know, to get one spot. But I think, honestly, I remember when I beat Rumble Johnson the first time to get the belt, the UFC belt. I won that Strike Force title and I felt like, okay, I made it. But then when I beat Rumble Johnson and won the belt the first time and I went back to the locker room and my, my wife was back there with my mom and dad and uh, they were just like so happy. Like Selena was so happy. And there's a video of her and Cassandra right after the win and they're both just yelling, ah! Like, cause they, the camera goes to him, but then my mom and dad are right next to him. Like just, just going nuts, you know? And I think back to that and think back to my dad being gone today. And when he was there, he had no idea what this thing was going to turn into. Like I couldn't have imagined showing him all that I've shown him before he passed away. And I just remember thinking that, wow, man, when I, thought about fighting I wanted to be the UFC champion and, and I had become one so that was probably the one because I didn't have I didn't have money like I have today and my life wasn't what it is today you know Selena and I were living in a we had gotten to a condo at the time it was 1300 square feet and we thought we were doing great we had our two children we had a little bit of money in the bank and everything was still to try to just be the best you know we were gonna buy our first house because after I had lost to Jones Lorenzo Fertitta gave me a million dollars him and Dana gave me a million dollars they actually called me and, and they said we're gonna give you a million dollars DC for the job that you've done so when people say wow Daniel Cormier made $80,000 to fight John Jones uh, and that was such a big paper no they gave me a million dollars I didn't get pay-per-view. I didn't get, I was just a guy that was a challenger against a guy that defended the belt all those times. They gave me a million dollars. So at that point in my life, Selena and I were about to buy our first house and I was becoming a UFC champion. And you know what they did after that? You know what happened after I fought uh, Rumble Johnson? I won the belt and I got paid $300,000 in the pay-per-view, sold 300000 
And you know what they did after that? They gave me $400,000 to make sure that I made a million dollars. Wow. But when people talk about my relationship with the UFC, Lorenzo Fertitta and Dana White have been nothing but gold to me. And in that moment, I was happiest because I was starting to make real money. And I was, my family was advancing and I just became a UFC champion. And my parents had got to see things that they never could have imagined in Lafayette. And I was making money to where I could go and get them a house too. So, yeah, that was probably when I was happiest, when I knew that my life was going to change when I became a UFC champ. And I noticed how those guys took care of people and realized that now I can take care of my family, not just my family here, but my family back in Louisiana. Because I understood that my life was changing. But every time. So when people talk about you're a white knight for the UFC, why wouldn't I be? They changed my life. UFC 187, uh, Memorial Day 2015. What a moment that was. That's a great story. By the way, do they just give you like a check for a million? Is that just like a check that they give you with a million dollars on it? That's incredible. I fought John Jones on Saturday. It was all pissed off and sad. Monday, Dana called me. Lorenzo called me to offer the fight. You ready? You want to try to be a champion? This was before we were supposed to fight in September or August or whatever. And then um, after the fight Monday, Dana goes, hey, you, you guys absolutely killed it. He goes, and you were such a vital part of building this thing. He goes, we're going to send you a check for a million dollars. I was like, wow. really? I'd never made a million dollars in my life. Never thought that was even possible. And they sent me a check for a million dollars. Three, four days later, a check comes from UPS. million dollars. Changed my life. So, yeah, of course, I love those guys. Why wouldn't you? Yeah, and now it's, and, and then now it's like the checks have just been bigger. And you don't get that anywhere else. So, but it was that was probably the happiest because I knew that I could really support my family. I can really do stuff for not only my wife and kids, but for uh, my family. What's something that works so well that it's basically magic? Air conditioning, noise canceling headphones, meeting free Fridays. Well, what about selling with Shopify? <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch at your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million order stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autograph apparel or selling sleek skis, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all in one commerce platform to their in person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling. Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms and sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash dcrc. All lowercase, go to shopify.com slash dcrc now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in 
Shopify.com slash DCRC. You okay there, bud? Everything all right? I want to just give you a big old hug. Yeah, I need a hug at times. <laughs> I need a hug. I want to give you a big old hug. You know, this is great it's stuff. It's um, um, Can I ask you something that also bothered me? Yeah. And I know people were getting mad at me for this, but I don't care. I felt like John Jones's tweets on that Saturday and his subsequent announcement on the, the Monday following your fight that he was leaving the division and all this stuff was taking shine from you was a subtle way of kicking you while, while you were down. Am I too protective? Am I looking at this a little too much? What did you think of all of that? Jones right after the fight tweeting. And then on the Monday after giving up the belt. So all the attention is on him, not Stipe and you, I, I just felt like the timing was a little bit off. What did you make of it? You know, I didn't really like, know what he tweeted much i didn't really pay attention you know i mean look man i'm so past this whole this john jones thing like it's like for me to it's like at this point like for me to even like give it any any thought or any it's it's ridiculous you know because i know that as my story ends and there's just all this stuff to be accomplished i'm not sure that he gets that and it's whatever, you know, I'll, I'll take the longevity of a life of accomplishments um, than dealing with, with the guy that has had all those issues and almost seems as though he wants nothing more than to, to give himself a tough time whenever he doesn't have that ability to fight anymore, which is sad. So didn't pay attention to it. If that was his intention, then good on him. But at the end of the day, you know, I don't know how this guy's story ends and you know, he's got some real changes if, if his story doesn't end very sad. So I'm going to go about making my life as big as possible and not even giving any of my energy to any of that stuff anymore. My greatest rival, Steve Miocic, a fireman, a husband, and a guy that loves his family, not John Jones, a guy that has done those things in his life and, uh, has been a, a real education in what not to do. I'd rather my rival be a guy that's a firefighter and that protects the community and, and loves his family and does things the right way. So that's who I'm gonna. That's who I'm gonna give my energy to when people ask about my greatest rival. Timing aside and your rivalry aside, uh, are you surprised he ultimately gave up the belt? Um, I think. With with his no, granted, like all all that I said before, you know, those are personal things, and but like when it comes to him professionally, if you have that skill set, the skill set that John Jones has, doesn't matter what weight class, he will be able to compete. That's uh, that's a fact. You can love him, you can hate him, but that's a fact. Like one eighty five, John Jones can compete. Two hundred five, John Jones can compete. 280, 265 or whatever the weight is, heavyweight, John Jones can compete. He will compete against anybody. So for him to go to heavyweight, I don't know if it's as risky as people are trying to make it seem. He can fight those guys because I fought those guys. They're big, they're strong, they're dangerous, but he can fight those guys. Um, him giving up the belt, I don't know if that was an him saying, you know what, now's the time, or that was an indication of how tough that Dominic Reyes really is for him. I just don't know if, if, you know, I don't know what it was. It could be there's no way I'm fighting this Reyes again, right? 
Or it could be the UFC going, it's Dominic Reyes or it's not Jan Bohovic. It's Dominic Reyes or it's nobody. You guys aren't going to tell me what to do at this stage of my career. You don't know what the conversation was. But if anything, I think it's a testament to Dominic. Dominic's a big guy, tough, athletic, durable. And uh, he gave John fits. And maybe John just doesn't want to go through that again. It all gets tougher, man. As you get older, even though he's still, you know, maybe – how old is the guy? 30, 31, 32? Uh, I think 33. Or no, 32. So, like, but, yeah, it all gets tougher, Ariel. As you get older, it gets tougher. And those guys continue to improve and continue to get better. They're just as big now. They're just as long. Dominic's just as athletic. I mean, it gets tougher. Maybe he just didn't want any part of that. Because he did say he would fight Jan Bohovic. Remember initially mm-hmm. it was like, I'll fight Jan Bohovic. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, maybe it was just like, it's Dominic Reyes or it's nobody. And he's like, then it's nobody. I'll go to heavyweight. Do you believe he will ever fight at heavyweight in the UFC? I do. I do. The right matchup. I believe he'll fight the right guy. I believe he'll fight the right guy. I believe he'd fight Miocic. I really do. Okay. Do, do you think they will book Stipe versus him next, right away? Stipe's next fight. I don't think Stipe gets – I don't think Stipe fights uh, Jones next. And I don't know if Stipe ever fights Jones. It, it sucks because I like Stipe Miocic, but I think that it all, it all comes at a cost, Ariel. And all those right hands that he took, it comes at a cost. And the next time Stipe steps into the octagon, I don't, I don't feel confident he's going to win because all those shots come at a cost. Wait a second. So you're saying they're going to do Francis versus Stipe and Francis is going to win. I think Francis wins the title next time. And then do they do Francis versus Jones? Unless, unless Stipe takes a lot of time off to try to let his, his mind and his body, his head recover a little bit. Because think about it. Francis hit him with all those shots in January. I hit him in July and he went down. Right? He took all the shots from Francis. But then when I hit him in July, he went down. The last two years, I've hit him with those same shots and he was able to take them because it was a year in between fights. So unless he takes a long time... The next time he fights, he's going to get knocked out. Because we did, over the last three years, we've done a ton of damage to each other. We fought 10 rounds in total. And we fought 10 rounds in total. And it's been freaking crazy fights. You know, like wars. And he's taking damage. I've taken damage. Like, it would be difficult for either of us to go fight a Francis Ngannou and not run the risk of getting put to sleep. I was so happy right after the fight. (laughs) Uh, when he told Mark Ramundi that Francis should be next, that Jones should not leapfrog him because I believe Francis should be next. Francis has done a lot of amazing things. I mean, his last mm-hmm. one was amazing, but the last four fights have been incredible with wins yeah. over Jarzinho and Blades and Cain Velasquez and JDS. I mean, other than fighting you, it doesn't get any better than that in terms of trying to get a title shot, right? And so I'm happy when I, when I hear him say that. And then like three days later, I hear him say that he wants to box. Like, wait, wait, you just said Francis. Please don't do the boxing thing again. I feel like we've done this. Like, Stipe is the baddest man on the planet, and I think you can make a case that Stipe is the baddest man on the planet regardless of combat sports. That's what it is. The the MMA champion is the baddest man on the planet. Why box? Why box? If you put him in Tyson Fury in a free fight, he beats Tyson Fury every time. Yes. I mean, yeah, he's the baddest man on the planet for sure. No question. The boxing thing is tired. Like, we did that three years ago. It should be Stipe versus Francis. Last year, right? It was like, maybe I'll box instead of fighting D.C., Yes, right? yes. So I think the boxing thing's tired. But the reality is, if I don't even know if it's necessarily about the boxing. I think it's about getting Jones in there. Because here's the difference. Jones won't knock him out. Jones won't knock him out. Hmm. Francis might. 
Francis will, actually. I think Francis does knock him out this time, unless, again, he's gone for a long time and he refreshes his chin. Took too much damage in those fights between him and I. But Jones won't knock him out. Jones won't punch him and put him to sleep. It doesn't matter what he weighs. He does not have that punching power. He doesn't hit very hard. Kicks hard, but he doesn't punch very hard. He knows that if he goes and fights Jones, which would be very competitive, very good fight, um, it'll, it'll, it would be either him knocking Jones out or it'd be in a decision because Jones won't knock him out. This podcast is proud to be supported by Jets Pizza, the number one pick in Detroit-style pizza. Why? It's simple. Jets is better. With the thickest, crispiest, cheesiest Detroit-style pizza in the country, there's no competition. Right now, get $5 off any eight-corner pizza with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Go to jetspizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jet's signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jet's Pizza. Better because it has to be. Can I tell you what I think the UFC should do? And I know you said that you hope that Stipe takes some time, but I think that Okay, they're booked up until November as far as pay-per-view main events are concerned. December is still um, available, and that could be Kamar Usman versus Gilbert Burns. But I'm saying end of this year, either the December pay-per-view or early next year, January, February, do Stipe versus Francis, number two, for the belt. Don't book John Jones against anyone. Don't risk him. You know, he could slip on a banana peel. He could get knocked out by, I don't know, a Derek Lewis. I don't know. Don't put him in there against anyone. And then next summer have John Jones make his heavyweight debut for the title because I think him making his heavyweight debut for the title is a big story is a big story. And you can't, if he loses, it's no longer a big story, right? Keep him on the sidelines, let him muscle up, let him negotiate, whatever. Do that fight between CB and Francis. It's a fair fight. It's a big fight. It's an interesting fight. And then next summer do John Jones versus the winner. What do you think? Stipe beat. If Stipe fights Francis that early January, then he'll lose. Hmm. I mean, I don't you, – because you got to remember, he said he put on a master class on how to beat Francis last time, and he absolutely did. But he took a lot of shots in trying to pursue that. Remember that first round? They were kind of throwing in. It was one of the craziest first rounds I've ever seen a heavyweight. And Stipe got hit a few times and fell into shots a couple times because he got hit so bad that he was shooting almost because he was hurt. He takes those shots right now in six months, he's going to go to sleep. Like Wow. It's just a reality. And then Jones will fight. But then does Jones even fight in Ghana? Does he really fight in Ghana? I mean, I don't know. He said he wanted to this past summer. Yeah, but does he really fight in Ghana? Well, like, do they pay him what he wants to fight in Ghana? Yeah, like, all right. Like, that's what I mean, right? Does he fight in Ghana? Does he actually get 8 to $10 million to go fight Francis in Ghana? Because you know it's going to take a lot of money in order to get him there in there with Francis. He ain't going to fight Francis for the regular 3 to $5 million he's making right now. It's too risky. It's too dangerous, especially if he can't take him down, and especially at a weight class that he's never competed at before. He doesn't know if he can go take Francis down. He doesn't know if he can manage his energy as well at heavyweight because the guys are so big, and his fighting style makes him carry a lot of his weight. It's, it's tough. It's a tough ask. So while it's a bigger story, it is also much riskier to put him in that scenario for the very first time that he's fighting at heavyweight. Mm. All right, so we'll see how that plays out. The UFC hasn't uh, 
come out and said that this is actually happening, but I thought it was really good that Dana White said immediately after the fight that, yes, yeah. Francis is next, gave him the, the vote of confidence, something that Aljamain Sterling can't seem to get. He got but, it. He got it. He gave it to Aljo just last week. Yeah, it was like a month later, for God's sake. I don't know. Took, his, his <laughs> uh, yeah, that is good news. So a lot has obviously happened since we've done a show. Um, between the two UFC events that have happened since your fight, Frankie Edgar winning in his bantamweight debut, Alexander Rakic with the big win over Anthony Smith last weekend, uh, Robbie Lawler lose, you know, Magni Alexa Grasso looking good in her flyweight debut, but nothing in the world of sports was bigger than what happened first in the world of basketball and then trickled down, you know, throughout every sports league um, holding events right now. And I feel like we'd be remiss if we don't talk about this uh, as we quote unquote, round third on today's program. Um, what happened, first what happened uh, last weekend, not this past weekend, last weekend in Kenosha, Wisconsin um, with Jacob Blake getting shot seven times by police. And then as news started to trickle in regarding his condition, come Wednesday afternoon, it's the Milwaukee Bucks against Orlando Magic in game five of the NBA playoffs. And as we've come to find out later with some tremendous reporting by our colleagues on the NBA side of things, at ESPN, uh, that it was George Hill, the veteran, who earlier that day said, you know, we should not play. Um, and ultimately, uh, the team, the Milwaukee Bucks, the best team in the league record-wise, decides not to play. And then the Magic decide not to play. And then later in the day, it's the Thunder and your Rockets who decide not to play. And it's Lakers. the Lakers and the Trailblazers. And then it's right. the Milwaukee Brewers. And it's other MLB teams. And then the next day, it's NHL teams. And then the NBA pauses. WNBA, and then the WNBA, the WNBA, everybody just decided. Everyone. It was, uh, it was amazing to see. And uh, we thought that maybe the NBA season would be over. There were some serious conversations. In the end, they decided to resume. But could I ask you, what did you think as a black man, seeing these athletes stand up and say, you know what? You know, we're not politicians. We're not in office, but we're going to do our part. And we said that, you know, if we don't feel good about something, we said that we're going to come here and play. But if we feel like something's not right, if more things continue to happen, we're going to do some serious stuff. We're going to start being about it. And they ended up doing that. What did you think of that as it was unfolding? I thought it was great. I thought it was, it was crazy because I wasn't watching the start of the Bucks in the Magic game. And you texted me, you go, are you watching what's going on right now? I was like, what? You're like, the Bucks aren't taking the court. And I was like, no. So that qu I quickly turned it over to watch it. And then I start to think, you take your platform and you use it as a weapon to try and build and bring eyes and make people pay attention to what's going on in the world, right? And that's why Black Lives Matter is on the court. That's why they have the statements on their jerseys. It was supposed to be a way to shine a light on all the things that are happening in our world right now. Then when the Jacob Blake situation happens, it seems like nothing's, nothing's changing, right? So how do you go forward? I thought it was great. I thought it was great. And you know what actually, you know what actually made me feel better about a world that honestly, Ari, I can barely sleep. Like I can barely sleep at night thinking about how ugly our world is turning. Um, solidarity, right? Solidarity. It wasn't just the Milwaukee Bucks and then the Magic. It was everybody. It was, it was every athlete. Major League Baseball, black athletes, white athletes, Spanish athletes, everybody took a stand. And it's like, we all got to come together if our world's going to start to change. And I, I, I just love how the NBA has become the leader in terms of showing the world how things should be done from 
the COVID-19, the moment the NBA decided the season was done, everything was done. When the NBA decided we're not going to play, we are going to protest in honor of the Jacob Blake situation, everybody follows. So when you talk about being the king of sports, you take the responsibility of being the king of sports and leading people. And I feel like the NBA is doing that better than anybody right now. And, and uh, it, it was everywhere because, you know, Drew Brees, right, who got so much stuff early in the summer, went to practice, had, the, had Jacob Blake's name on his helmet. You know, like everybody's now starting to try to shine a light on, on the inequalities and, and how bad things are getting out in the world right now. It's, it's actually getting worse. And it's making it hard for people to, I can't sleep. Last night, I actually had one of the worst nights of sleep because I've got a new baby coming. And I couldn't sleep because I was thinking to myself, how do I provide for my family if we go to a world where I got to go hunting and make it like, like Chad Mendez kills, kills deer and he, 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 whatever they call it, they cut it down the middle, they make the, the meat. I can't do that for my family. And it seems like we're going to a world where the world's going to just get uglier and uglier and uglier. And what are we going to do? So when these organizations take a stand, it need, it, we need to. We need that. We need people to take a stand and try to help, man, because I, I don't know what's going on right now. You know, I don't care what the ratings say. I agree with you 100%. When it comes to setting the tone in this country and sports, it's the NBA, not the NFL, that yeah, is king. And we've sure. seen that over the past few months, these men and women of the WNBA are not afraid to speak up. And I have so much respect and admiration for them. And I took a lot of heat for posting a video um, supporting them. I don't regret it for a second. In fact, my only regret is that I didn't go longer and maybe expand on my thoughts a little bit. But if I could just add to what you said very, very well, I'm equal parts like in all of these men and women and equal parts so sad when I have to see them do these things. Like, I don't know if you saw Jamal Murray last night um, and his post game interview after his incredible win. It's like to the, to the haters out there, to the critics. Yes. It would be great if sports were the ultimate escape valve. It would be amazing if we could forget about everything and the world was just this perfect utopia and we could watch game six of the Western conference playoffs and not have to think about anything that's serious in the outside world. That would be amazing. But the facts are, our world isn't like that right now. And to see these men say, you know what? We aren't politicians, but we feel like we can't stay quiet. We've come a long way from Republicans buy sneakers too, that famous line that Michael Jordan said many moons ago. These men are willing to put their Q rating, their fat, whatever on the line to say, no, we're not going to stand for this. And the fact that they feel like they have to do this, the Bucks had members of the Wisconsin government on the phone when they were in that locker room. They're doing things quicker and getting people to talk more. And now they're getting the owners to open up their arenas for voting and things like that. Like if you're telling me that these guys are just, it's crazy. They're actually making change. They're making change. And that's what happens. And these are athletes, DC. These are guys who just put balls in back. They're not supposed to be put in these. They're supposed to shut up and dribble. No. Shut up and dribble. No, don't shut up and dribble. Do what you're doing because it's working. And like you said, owners, owners are opening up arenas to let people vote because that's, that's important. You got to have access. You because the have players access. made them, right? Yes. The players- like that's, that's change. That's change at the highest levels because that's not that, – now you're dealing in government, right? Like your polling stations. NBA arenas are becoming polling stations. That's crazy. And that's about all they could do. I was watching Doc Rivers, and it was sad to watch Doc Rivers 
talk about the state of our world today and how black people are treated. He was, he was crying. He was essentially crying on national television. And then I watched Dennis Scott and the guys discuss what do the players want the owners to do? That, right? That. Something like that. Now it shows that they're all in it together where you're making it readily accessible for people to be able to vote. Now they're, make, now they're all making a change together, and it's, it's, it's insane and great to watch, man. It's great to watch. Those and guys are – that's using your platform to make a change. And please get out of here with this, oh, you guys are political. We're not political. I'm not telling no. you who to vote. I can't even vote in this country. I don't even have a vote. I'm not telling you who to vote. All I'm saying is if you can't look at LeBron James and, and these men – leaders and i put lebron first because he's the one that you know gets the most bullets sometimes right he's the one that gets those arrows thrown at him every time he says something it's like no it's not fair and of course i'm talking about uh, figuratively not literally but he has been the uh the subject of racism as well when he moved to la if you remember people spray painted things on his on his uh, garage door they don't want to be in these positions but they have to be and now they're starting to see that their voice actually travels their voice matters and we have to listen to them this is what i want out of my athletes if i know that something bothers you deep down inside but you feel like you're uncomfortable talking about something like oh man you know i don't want to get heat no i want my favorite athletes to speak up i want to know what makes them tick i want to know what they feel i want to know what bothers them in their communities and you have these guys what did we always say about athletes growing up oh all they care about is the money the jewelry the fame you have these guys who have all the money in the world and they're talking about their brothers and sisters. This is inspiring. How can you not love this? How can you not respect this? It doesn't make any sense to me why anyone would be against this. Well, yeah, but because some people don't want change. But the reality is, it's like, you don't, you don't go out there and try to influence how people go one way or the other. You just got to go and do and take a right that's given to us as Americans that women and people fought for for years. And everybody should just vote. That's our right. It's our right to vote. It's our voice to go and cast that vote, regardless of where you vote, regardless of who you vote for, whether it's going to be Joe Biden, uh, Donald Trump, or Kanye West. It don't matter who you vote for. You have that right to go and vote, and you should use that and take that right and take that opportunity to go and let your voice be heard. The, the, the one thing that upsets me more than anything in the, in the world is when people say, well, my vote doesn't count. It doesn't matter. There's so many people. It's like, no, man, that is your right. That is your voice. You influence it where you can and use that opportunity, use that option. So yeah, it's good, man. That you just told me that, that the, the owners are going to let people vote there. That's great news to me. I didn't even know that. And it makes me so happy. Oh yeah. Toyota center, Madison square garden, many places. And if I could just add this, because I do think it's important um, to, to add this, by us talking about this, and I even think by basketball players and baseball players talking about this, I am not anti-police. Some of the greatest no. people I've met doing this job are police officers. If you recall, for many years on my computer, I had the Las Vegas Metro Police Department badge that my good friend Bill Steinmetz, who I only met as a result of doing this job, who has done incredible things for that community, um, gave to me as a president and meant a lot to me. I met a lot of great people who are police officers. I understand that they have an incredibly tough job. Yeah. And, and I hate to see what's happening with this distrust. But uh, unfortunately, there are some people who abuse that power. And it's getting to the point where a lot of people are uncomfortable and saying enough is enough. So I just want people to recognize I am not anti-police and I have a lot of respect for good police officers. It's so scary, right? Because I just think that it's something, I think it's something in the training. I don't think that the police officers that are doing a lot of these bad actions are trained properly and they're scared. A lot of cops are very afraid now and fear is not a good thing whenever you're carrying a weapon. 
fear is not good when you're carrying a weapon and you know that you have almost absolute power. So it's, it's scary. I, I think something needs to be changed at the training level, but you're right, man. There are a lot of good police officers. There are a lot of bad police officers, but there are people, they need to be trained up better and they need to be trained up better and just have to be more confident in their ability to apprehend people without deadly force. Hi, it's Mike Greenberg letting you know ESPN Bet is ready to take you through all the biggest sports moments this spring. The official sportsbook of ESPN has exclusive offers and markets from Scott Van Pelt, Stephen A. Smith, and me, plus many more. From the playoff intensity to finally getting out to the ballpark, there's no better time for sports fans. Sign up today. New users get a bet reset up to $1,000 in bonus bets if your first bet doesn't win. Download ESPN Bet today. What a play. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. See app for details. So shout out to George Hill and the Milwaukee Bucks and all the athletes that spoke up uh, last week. I know you have a shout out, DC. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm trying to find my uh, I'm trying to find my pad right here. Yeah. Okay, I wrote it down. All right. Look at you. Right. So I just have a shout out to the great people of Lafayette, Louisiana, because Ariel. You know, with the Jacob Blake situation, it's kind of been a few weeks ago, a young black man was killed by the police going into a store um, in Lafayette. Um, his name is Trayford Pellerin, and he got shot in the back, and he died, 31 years old. But the people of Lafayette were protesting peacefully, trying to shine a light on Trayford and his family and not to let his memory be lost in the everything else. And... The day after Hurricane Laura, the day after Hurricane Laura, the people got right back out. The NAACP in Lafayette, the people in Lafayette um, got right back out to protest because they want the Lafayette Police Department to be held accountable for killing that young man. And um, I also want to give a special shout out to a lady named Tara Fogelman. Tara Fogelman is part of a group in Lafayette and they're protesting for Trayford Pellerin and she was out at the mayor's house in the street protesting, wanting him to address her and the people that were there. He didn't come out, so she lit up her barbecue pit and started making food for anybody that came by. She got arrested. <laughs> she got arrested, of course. She got arrested. She got arrested. They sent her to jail. But one of my good friends, Bryson Bernard, people know him as Cupid, made the song The Cupid Shuffle, um, bailed her out of jail, and she was right back out there trying to let her voice be heard. So to the people of Lafayette, continue to honor Trayford in the right way. Peaceful protests. Hold people accountable until we get some answers as to what happened in that young man's death. Shout out to my man Carmelo Anthony, Mr. Three to the Dome himself, not just for what he did in the playoffs, not just because everyone doubted him and said that he wasn't good enough. He helped the Blazers make it to the playoffs. But not only that, this man has been called a selfish, selfish player throughout his career. And what has he been doing since the restart? He has been a leader. He has been an advocate. He has been a role model for all the young players. My man Carmelo, I will, I will argue on his behalf until the end. And I love seeing the respect that he's getting. I hope that he resigns with the Blazers. My guys, Syracuse. That's the place. Melo. Melo's leading the charge. Hey, Amen. Big shot by Melo over and over again. Melo. I watch Melo's YouTube. It's phenomenal. The interviews that he's doing, Melo is the man. He's the uh, man. And we'll, we'll end on a depressing note because we had a string of just heartbreaking deaths over the past few days. Uh, Chadwick Boseman, everyone 
who found out about his passing on Friday due to colon cancer. I think it was like a gut punch because no one knew that he was battling colon cancer for the past four years. Uh, just want to give him a shout out. And I know that you're a big fan of his as well. Yeah, man. The Black Panther, Chadwick Boseman, you know, like think about the fight that he was going through without letting anybody know and still giving us all these movies. Like, and he lost a whole bunch of weight earlier this year and people were on him, on him. You're on the internet making fun of a man for losing weight. I remember people questioning whether or not Chadwick was losing weight for a movie role. Come to find out this man was sick, man, fighting for his life while still trying to give us entertainment. And people are in his comments and they're making fun of him and, and on him so bad, Ariel. I'd have to take photos down and, and take the comments off so that people wouldn't, because he, he wasn't going to tell them, I'm fighting colon cancer. That's my fight. That was his fight. What a, what a, a, uh, a warrior to, to go through what he went through without letting the world know, man. I mean, he's the king. You know, he's the king. He's the Black Panther. T'Challa, he's, he's, he's the king. And, and the, you know, a black superhero. And I don't know how it continues without him, but gosh, we are going to miss Chadwick Boseman. And it just came out of nowhere. And it's so sad. 2020, man. Kobe, Chadwick, it's, been, it's just been the worst. Uh, may he rest in peace. Also, uh, finding out that the great Arizona head coach, Lute Olsen, passed away. Cliff Robinson, who I was a huge fan of back in the day, uh, the Portland Trailblazers. And just this morning, uh, DC, we find don't, out that don't the great. Give me another one, man. Oh, don't you give didn't. Me one. You don't, don't know about this one? No, man. Who this morning? Oh, just this morning, one of the all-time great coaches in the history of basketball, the man himself, the mountain of a man, the absolute legend, the head coach for your Georgetown Hoyas. John Not Thompson. John Thompson. John Not Thompson. John Thompson. Yes, 78 Not years John young. Thompson. Yes, I love John Thompson. Oh, my God. Not John Thompson. And, 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 and what an advocate as well for the black oh. community and a father figure to the likes of Patrick Ewing and Allen Iverson and John Alonzo Thompson Mourning. All around his jig. Patrick Ewing. Henry Matumbo. Like, come on. John Thompson. Not John Thompson. What happened? Uh, he was sick, unfortunately. You know, my first job out of college, D.C., was working on a documentary for HBO Sports about the Georgetown Villanova 1985 NCAA championship, and I got to learn so much about John Thompson, oh about John Thompson who he too. was and what he Lute stood Olson. for. Yeah. I mean, Lute Olson with the white hair, looking slick. He was like the white-haired Pat Riley. He was like, he remember the slick hair, the Arizona, the, I mean, they were balling. I mean, come on, Lute Olson. Cliff Robinson, he had the bandana, the little thing around his head, the headband. I mean, he played for the Blazers, do shooting threes before big men shot threes. I mean, come on, man. We can't take any more. Can we fast forward? Is there a fast forward button to the end of the year? Because I can't take any – John Thompson now. John Thompson. The coach, had, coach always had the towel draped around his shoulder. The man. Big Patrick Ewan running to the sideline. You know, like the Georgetown Hoyas. Hoyas Saxa. Because we had – because of Ewing and – John Thompson, as a black kid, you almost had to like the Hoyas. That was the squad, right? They just seemed like they were our team. And it, God dang it, man. Like, that's – I didn't know that one. Come on, Hawani. You just want to ruin my day. Like you, I'm sorry. You almost made me cry on the retirement, and now you want me to cry at the end because you're telling me about all this? It's crazy. And I'll only do this once. Shout out to you, DC. What a great career. What a great run. You did it with class and grace. You are a role model. You are an inspiration to everyone. And uh, I am proud to call you my friend. And I can't wait for this journey as we uh, 
we take over ESPN with this amazing show. So shout out to you, my man. Nothing to be ashamed of. Hold your head up high. You are one of the all-time greats. And uh, it has been an amazing pleasure watching your career. Thank you, my brother. I appreciate you covering it. And honestly, like quick message to my, my wife, my children, uh, my family in Louisiana, my management team, Bob Cook, Dwayne Zinkin, my coaches, Javier Rosendo, Rudy, Camacho, Leandro, uh, Dave Camarillo, Weetzy, Teddy, all the guys from the past. Everybody's played a part. I appreciate and love you guys. You've been so good to me. And I, I thank you guys for taking this ride with me. And to my fans, to my fans, I love you. You love me. You hated me. We've been up and down. But to my fans, I love you guys more than anything in the world. You guys have meant the world to me. You have really uplifted me in my darkest times. You have allowed for, you have carried me to the highest of heights. And the support has been overwhelming. But we are not done. We take over ESPN and we take over the media world now. And we do it together. I love you guys. Thank you so much. And to the UFC, Strike Force. Scott Coker, thank you for giving me an opportunity. Dana White, the UFC, Lorenzo Fertitta. I know you're not in the game right now. I appreciate and love you. Ari Emanuel, Patrick White, so all you guys, thank you. I appreciate everything you've done for me. And now my new family, hey, hey my old family over at the other station where we all worked, Ariel, they gave me a chance too. I love them all. Thank you guys. To my new family here at ESPN, we will continue to grow together. We are now starting a journey. Let's take over the world. And we will do it together. But thank you all so much for all you've done for my career. I could never have imagined that I would be where I am today. So thank you for giving. There was no honor in Daniel Cormier's name in 2009 after the 2008 Olympics. Thank you for giving me purpose and allowing me to start this next part of my life with honor in my name and with an opportunity to go and do things that are even bigger than the things I did today. Thank you. Back next week, same time and place. Until then, we say peace. We're out of here.